Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is the Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. It certainly is. Great to have you with us. We'll get to Mark Latham very shortly on the program. You know, I try to cover as much as I can on transgender entitlements, the battle and war that's going on between activists and parents from schools who simply want some say in what their children do about gender identity. But, of course, the rules in so many state schools in the United States extract them from that decision-making process, which is just appalling, appalling. And some of the moves that are being made in sport are very interesting with, you know, very famous and accomplished elite stars stepping out of competition to make a point about, well, in most women's case, having to swim or race or run against biological men who call themselves transgender women. But this is out of left field. This is out of left field. A pool player, as in billiards, pool, has forfeited her chance to win a top national title in protest at the sport allowing a transgender woman, biological male, to compete against females. Lynn Pinches told Telegraph Sport in the UK she has turned down an invitation to turn full-time professional amid her despair at a U-turn in international rules. On Saturday, Pinches was cheered by spectators as she packed up her cue and refused to play as the final of the Ladies' Champions of Champions got underway. Her opponent, Harriet Haynes, reacted with bemusement before later picking up the trophy by default. How could you do that? How could you do that? Pinches, who's age 50, from Norwich, said, Walking out was the toughest thing I've ever had to do in the game in my life. I have played 30 years and I've never even considered as much as a frame, never mind a match. This was only my fourth final ever, but the trophy or money meant nothing to me without fairness. And that's what I said to the tournament tournament director afterwards. Now, this is an interesting point. I cannot see for the life of me why competing against biological men who want to be called transgender women in pool, why that would be a disadvantage to women. However, however, it is about biological men not taking place in women-only competitions, I guess. How would it impact on the outcome of the decisions, or the outcome, sorry, of the games and matches. Anyway, Pinchers, who still received, I think it was 500 pounds as tournament runner-up, is among a host of female players left devastated in recent weeks after a redrafting of restrictions. Players claim they had received assurances that transgender women or non-binary players would be stopped. However, the World 8-Ball Pool Federation, an ultimate pool group, Instead, stated last month in new guidance that transgender and non-binary players will be able to to participate in the women's series. Well, and see, this goes against the tide of other sports, but I'm still struggling to try and find out why men would have an advantage on the pool table over women. What are your thoughts on that? If you uh, can enlighten me and you're a a pool-oriented person, I'm a mug. 
uh, you can give us a call from the United States or Canada on one eight 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 two zero one six four two five. This hasn't got too much coverage in the UK, but if you've seen it and you've got a view about it from the UK, give us a call on 033-0024-1026. And from Australia and New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. Richard Miles, the Defence Minister in Australia, has started question time as Acting Prime Minister, of course, Albanese in at APEC in San Francisco, confirming a huge backflip on government policy over the release of more than 80 criminals from immigration detention into the community. Now, in style and substance, according to the Australian newspaper, Miles appeared prime ministerial, calm and credible, as he responded to a coalition question without rancor or with a mature acceptance of the reality of the situation. What Miles was identifying, that the Albanese government has completely capitulated to Peter Dutton's demand, Peter Dutton being the opposition leader. Miles has recognised the need for urgent action on the release of murderers, pedophiles and rapists and the need to pass the legislation today. Despite earlier rejecting any sense of coalition amendments aimed at limiting movement and employment, and the Prime Minister pointed to that in the chamber yesterday, the government has totally accepted the amendments in return for immediate passage of the laws through the House of Reps and the Senate. So Labor has suddenly and completely conceded the urgency for the new laws and the depth of community concern not the least of which are the fears expressed by some of the victims of the criminals who have been released. This is a political and policy capitulation. This is TNT Radio. What matters to you? They cover the important story. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. He's a former mayor, a political advisor and federal opposition leader, now an independent member of the Legislative Council, the Upper House of the New South Wales Parliament. Mark Latham, MLC, welcome to TNT Radio once again. Thanks for having me, Chris. Always a pleasure. Yeah, I want to go back on what the Labor Party has done, despite what Anthony Albanese said, that Dutton was uh, trying to use the release of these detainees for political purposes and we wouldn't be changing anything. They've changed it all, right? They've accepted all the amendments, uh, so the new laws will be passed if they haven't been uh, passed already to deal with the release of these 80-plus long-term detainees. Uh, these people will now be liable to the criminal laws of the nation and can be jailed. They can be jailed, despite what the High Court says. Um, that, of course, still doesn't prevent the potential of criminal acts in the first instance, does it? Well, no, it doesn't. But I suppose the good news is that uh, with Albanese out of the country, uh, the opposition amendments put forward by Senator Patterson, their Home Affairs Shadow Minister, uh, have been used to beef up the legislation and the government has seen the sense of that. So, um, you know, there's nothing more important for government than public safety. It's atrocious that murderers, rapists, pedophiles have been released effectively by the High Court judges that won't have to live anywhere near them. And uh, this atrocious decision of the High Court, the Parliament needed to act, and this is how the Parliament should work, with an acceptance of bipartisanship when it involves public safety. Uh, I mean, Chris, at the end of the day, uh, people who needed um, ankle bracelets and curfews and other restrictions... What are they doing on the street in the first place? Yeah. You know, you've only got to state the proposition to see its absurdity. So the fact they can be jailed now is, uh, is a very good thing. Yeah, very good thing. And interesting, I think the way that was written by the Australian reporter indicated that the government seemed to be in safe hands under Richard Miles in question time, as opposed to the rancor that is the usual 
I guess, MO of the Prime Minister when he runs Question Time. Is that suggesting that it runs far more productively under someone else? Well, it is, but it's also a reflection on the clash yesterday between Peter Dutton and Anthony Albanese. It was a full-on parliamentary conflict, um, the like of which you don't see all that often, and it came from Peter Dutton trying to weave this home affairs question, the High Court decision, into the rise of anti-Semitism in Australia over uh, Gaza. True. So I don't know if there's a direct link between the two. It's hard to see. But Albanese took a lot of exception to that and, and, and gave it back to him with full force. Uh, yet that sort of thing never really worked for Paul Keating back in the day. Uh, it doesn't make for ple- pleasant TV. But in there, if you're under attack, you've got to defend yourself. And uh, as someone who doesn't mind a bit of argy-bargy, we saw plenty of it yesterday. Yeah, well, I want to get to the Middle East now. Uh, Israeli troops have got inside Gaza City's main hospital. Uh, they now say they have uh, unequivocal proof that Hamas has used the hospital not only as their shield but also as a storage for weapons. And I've seen some of the photos taken from various storage cupboards within the hospital that feature a whole heap of AK-47s, etc. I've cited footage too of soldiers taking people down under the tunnels which... Um, spiral around the property and presumably under the property, which are clearly Hamas tunnels as well. Uh, The whole human shield strategy, which is now, you know, not in question, is as vile and as grotesque as it gets, isn't it? It's a war crime. It's a war crime to be so atrocious that you would use uh, sick people, patients needing treatment in a hospital, to shield you from the military consequences of your own terrorism and barbarism. And that's what Hamas has done. I mean, it was bad enough what they did in Israel on the 7th of October. But to then use their own civilians, sick people in a hospital, plus the hospital staff, uh, from cleaners right through to doctors, as a human shield is just um, the pits. It's the lowest anyone can go in terms of armed conflict. You know, there's not many hospitals with tunnels underneath them uh, like this, and the Americans have independently verified that the Israeli claims are correct. Arabic propaganda arms like Al Jazeera are saying there's no verification of this, but uh, Biden and the American intelligence agencies are saying this is the case, and it makes for a nightmare of an operation. You've you've got to uh, wonder how effectively the Israelis can do it. They've got to weed Hamas out and get the terrorists out of the vicinity while ensuring that um, the patients are protected and no innocent person dies. So it's a nightmare of a military operation and we'll have to see how it unfolds. But the important thing to note for those who sort of, you know, have a reflex action to say Israel is all wrong, there's been some bad publicity about Israel and attacks on hospitals, but if Hamas is in there, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I heard a doctor uh, speak to ABC Radio today, and it was posted on X, and I listened to it, and this was a very intelligent person saying, it doesn't matter whether Hamas uh, have entwine themselves in the hospital system we've told them we've told the israeli defense force that there are no hamas soldiers in the hospital they cannot be in this hospital well hold on a second um if hamas were in the hospital what else are you going to say uh without the threat of a bullet in your head of course you're going to say that you've literally got to go in strip search people and work out the difference between hospital workers and hamas soldiers aren't you you've got to do that well if uh, osama bin laden and al-qaeda 
um, uh, 22 years ago were hiding in hospitals in Afghanistan, what would have been the reaction to it? Well, yeah. you're going to have to target them and get them out. Yeah. And the fact that they're hiding in there and using patients and hospital staff as shields just confirms how bad these people are. It's not an easy operation, but it's got to be done. The attacks on the Israeli army have been uh, wrong. Um, Hamas are as evil a group as you can ever find on the international scene. And dealing with them is not easy, but dealt with, they, 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 they must come to justice, and that justice inevitably uh, is with armed conflict. I still can't see this kind of evidence from the hospital softening the attitude of pro-Palestinian supporters, do you? No, well, there's a sort of reflex action out there that Israel is all wrong, and the Palestinians can do no wrong. Um, this is what drives part of the public debate. You know, it's disturbing that people have come to Australia saying they needed to be here for their own safety to get away from uh, the trouble in the Middle East, mm. uh, haven't left it behind. You know, yeah. you win the, the, the lotto of life when you uh, arrive in Australia in those circumstances, and they haven't left those hatreds and conflicts behind, and they brought them onto our streets uh, with attacks on the Jewish community, provocative acts like uh, rioting into the eastern suburbs. I mean, these things are just plainly wrong, and you look at them and think, how could this possibly be happening in Australia? Where on the other side of the world... It's a bad conflict in the Middle East. Let's at least recognise the truth that Israel has the right to defend itself. Defending itself is not easy, as we talk about this Al Shifa hospital circumstance, but uh, Hamas has to be dealt with. Mm. I don't care where you are in the world listening to this radio program, you'll appreciate this story. How's this for climate fraud? The national school strike for climate will take place tomorrow, but this year... Three leading climate professors have pre-signed climate doctor certificates, which can be personalised for students who attend the climate strikes across the country. Now, is that not technically a fraud, or is climate change anxiety exempt from the law? Well, climate change anxiety itself is a fraud. What a, what a, a nonsense. Uh, there's no evidence the planet's ending. There's been a concerted fear campaign from Greta Thunberg down and the Greens and the lefties all over the world to try and scare school children into fearing that the planet is about to dissolve, that their lives are about to end. Now, that in itself is wrong, um, but um, climate anxiety itself is a fraud. It shouldn't be an excuse for not being at school. And to sign off a blank check doctor's certificate, oh, I would have thought that's pretty dodgy, Chris. I would have thought the authorities would want to have a look at that. Yeah sign off a doctor's certificate, then the person fills in their name. If we did that for Medicare across the board, the country would go broke. Mm, very true. I hope they do. Um, you've just got a message from Josh, one of our listeners on our chat box, which is on TNTradio.live. I just want to say to Mr Latham, sir, that you're a bloody legend, and thank you for your service and all your efforts to make Australia better. Too many t punters talk SHIT but don't want to stick their neck out and have a crack like you have, sir. Well done and keep trucking, mate. I had a great time at the Milo event you hosted a few years back in Leichhardt. Uh, bloody legend. Cheers, Josh from Sydney. There you go. You've got a fan. Well, good on you, Josh. Thanks for that. I remember the Milo event. It was one of the funniest nights I've ever been involved in. Uh, it was about politics. Be a very funny man, the way he spoke, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. And Josh, uh, thanks for remembering that and thanks for your kind words. We'll take a quick break and come back. Lots to talk about, including a school that wants to have a four-day week. 
parents are not happy, Jan. This is TNT Radio. Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Anti-Semitism existed long before DEI, but here it is. At the heart of DEI is a simple binary. The world is divided between oppressors and the oppressed. Proponents of DEI cast white people as oppressors, black people as the oppressed. Will they apply this frame primarily to America? They often apply it to Israel too. Apparently, Israel is a bastion of Jew whiteness with a racist commitment to shattering the lives of non-white Palestinians. What's interesting about Jews as white oppressors, this is exactly what got Whoopi Goldberg in trouble on The View, where she actually, and, and still even doubled down the next day, and didn't think it was a big deal, but was finally forced by ABC to take a few days leave, issue an apology. But she essentially said that the Holocaust in Nazi Germany was no big deal because it was just white on white oppression. You know, not, not the kind of thing that we'd be concerned with today in our multicultural landscape. The Mark Morano Show on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Mom, stop yelling. Oh, you haven't heard yelling. Your kids Mr. may not be listening, but pretty much every voice activated smart device is. Just tell it to play. TNT Radio. Mark Latham, you've kind of become in New South Wales the uh, unofficial minister for school, so I'm sure you've got plenty to say about this. The prestigious Chevalier College in the New South Wales Southern Highlands wants to go four days a week and parents are absolutely furious. At least the parents appreciate the value of education, Mark. Well, it's also the inconvenience for the parents that on a Monday for year 10, 11 and 12 students, the parents have got to make alternative arrangements and for families where both parents work, obviously that's difficult and they've got to make sure their children are actually doing something productive. But uh, as parents, uh, paying over $11,000 to this uh, school at uh, Bowral that once produced the New South Wales Premier, John Fay, yeah. uh, you'd think that they'd be expecting the school fees would provide full-time education, not part-time, <laughs> yes. where they can, the kids will stay home on a, on a Monday. The, the principal has said this is to help the kids get used to the modern workplace. Well, maybe that's true post-COVID, but it's for the workplace to sort out whether people can work from home, not for a school to say that you can be educated from home because Chris the thing about school education it's been studied inside out all over the world and there's not a, a, a skerrick of evidence to say that absenteeism from school is good for your education results correct in fact the opposite is true it's said that you need a minimum of nine days a fortnight of schooling to get a decent education well the, these kids are down to eight under this decision so it, it makes no sense teachers have got to teach you know one of the unfortunate trends in the school system and we hear this with so-called student-based learning. Teachers think if I can avoid direct contact with students, like they can educate themselves or they can be at home, that, uh, that lessens my workload and that's a good thing. Well, wrong. Teachers have got to teach. They've got to stand at the front of the classroom. They've got to directly instruct the students, yeah. engage them in knowledge and ideas and exchange of views and give them a thing called education, yeah. not absenteeism where the kids sit at home and, and who knows what they'll be doing. Yeah, we're not talking about homeschooling here, so don't you know, ring in or don't write something on the checkbox to say, oh, you don't know anything about homeschooling. We're not talking homeschooling. We're talking about kids who are left 
to fend for themselves at home. Uh, presumably they keep in contact with their teacher. They fight for minimum or, or minimal resources at home. That includes computers because they've got brothers and sisters and probably older uh, siblings. This is not... Look, I've spoken to principals during the COVID-19 dramas when they were sent home, and all of those principals tell me it was unmitigated disaster. The kids lost six months of their schooling, at least, and it's a, a disaster. So Chevalier might want a woke workplace-like agenda, but that's not what parents want, and I reckon the parents are right and the principals got this uh, completely wrong. Well, it's an idea that's come totally out of left field. Nobody's, I've studied education policy inside out over decades, and I've never seen this idea that somehow senior students could stay home one day of the school week. Uh, this is an invention, an experiment that has no evidence base and it may well, Chris, lead to more homeschooling because if you're a parent there, you might think, oh, I can save $11,000 by doing the schooling myself for the other four days of the week. That's a big saving for a family. Um, so it does no credit to the school. It does nothing to help the education of the students and hopefully the parental protest that Chevalier College and Bowral will be so successful that the decision is reversed. Yeah, you'd hope. Now, New South Wales parliamentarians don't need a sick note to get out of attending Parliament. Uh, time off seems to be green-lighted. The Parliament sittings for 2024 seem rather light to you, do they? Well, absolutely. There's 11 sitting weeks in the entire year. When the O'Farrell government came in in 2011, they had 15 sitting weeks to deal with their legislative agenda. But I've mentioned this previously, Chris, that under Chris Minns, we're becoming a part-time parliament. You would have thought 12 years in opposition, Minns would be full of ideas and his ministers would be full of legislative proposals. The upper house goes home on a Tuesday night, barely enough legislation for a Thursday sitting. And this is a, a sign of it, that there's hardly any sitting set down for next year. We've become a part-time parliament in the first four months of the year. Um, there's just three weeks of sittings. The Parliament will sit one day on average for every fortnight. Um, Chris Minns won an election, but you'd have to say he's hit the ground reviewing. His main policy is to have reviews rather than his own firm ideas and big ambitions for the state of New South Wales. So I don't think it does any credit to the Parliament to look like we're part-time and to some extent we're bludging on the taxpayer. Now, last time we spoke, you were talking about the transport minister needing to go, and I understand there's another drama uh, out of left field. Question without notice. Embattled transport minister Joe Halen, according to the Daily Telegraph, has been accused of a second staffing rort after internal emails revealed a transport for New South Wales employee on loan to her office was intimately involved in drafting political communication. Camden Gilchrist, a former New South Wales Young Labor president, was loaned to Miss Hayden Halen's office by Transport for New South Wales in May as a senior departmental liaison officer at the request of Miss Halen's office. Under the terms of his employment, he was prohibited from doing party political work for the minister. However, emails produced by a parliamentary order have revealed Mr Gilchrist was repeatedly involved in drafting political messages. If she was due to be sacked last week, as you indicated... Surely enough's enough. Well, last week was three strikes. She should have been out. This is four strikes now. And Joe Halen, unfortunately, has thought that being a minister is to turn your ministerial office into a sub-branch of the Labor Party. Yeah. And everyone to do political work, when obviously there's public servants there who should be independent of party politics. So 
Chris Min stands by her because Halen has got valuable numbers for him inside the Labor Party caucus, but she's done the wrong thing. Min's promised very, very high standards. Like if Min's had just said, oh, we're just going to come in and sort of bubble along and our standards won't be so great, that'd be one thing. But he said it'd be a whole new revolution yeah. of ministerial integrity and high standards, and he's not living up to that with Joe Halen. Yeah. On the sporting front, Mark, uh, the first semi-final of the World Cup of one-day format cricket has been played. The hosts, India, were simply magnificent with the bat, weren't they? Yeah, I watched that last night. They're like a machine. Oh. All their batsmen are in top form. Uh, Vera Kohli has hit his 50th one-day international 100, the first player to ever do that, breaking the record of Sachin Tendulkar, who was in the crowd. Um, and the batting was just extraordinary. They, they, in large part, treated the New Zealand attack. They're not slouches. They're no. some of the best pace bowlers uh, in the world. They treated them with contempt. Yeah. And then at night when they bowl, this guy, Shammy, taking seven wickets. Oh. He's on fire. And, you know, I hope Australia beats South Africa tonight. But, boy, whoever goes through, you've got a big task to beat India. Ten out of ten in the World Cup. They look like a machine and they've got one hand on the cup, I'm afraid to say. Now, South Africa have had a predilection to choke in these World Cups. And I noticed that Fox News has been running examples of all of that. Will they choke tonight against Australia? They're further up on the table than Australia. So if rain comes, Australia don't go on. South Africa do to the final against India. Uh, if there's no rain, it'll be an interesting battle, won't it? Well, remarkably for one of the top cricketing nations, uh, since they came back into international cricket after the apartheid era and boycotts, um, South Africa's never got through to the final of a one-day World Cup or 2020. Yeah. And you'd think, boy, at some stage they must have played at least one. Uh, they need the rain tonight to guarantee that, but without rain, it's a long time ago, some of those chokes. Uh, and the current generation, I, don't, I wouldn't expect they're too influenced by it, but... Australia will certainly give them a run for their money. And uh, South Africa, with that record of never having got through to a final, maybe it will sort of linger in the back of their mind and, and, and play some role if it's, if it's a close result. Yeah, bring it on. Can't wait for all of that. I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time, Mark Latham. Yeah, another late night. Yeah, it will be. <laughs> it definitely will be. Mark Latham, MLC, um, now independent member of the Legislative Council in the New South Wales Parliament. I've got to get you some news, and then after that... One of the true advocates for survivors of sexual assault at the hands of members of the church. I'll speak with Chrissy Foster right after the news on TNT Radio. And here's the news. Extra, extra. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Chinese President Xi Jinping arrived in San Francisco on Tuesday, where he's due to meet face-to-face -face with President Joe Biden for the first time in 12 months. As calls grow louder for a ceasefire in Gaza, the new Speaker of the US House says the idea of a truce is outrageous. And Finland is gearing up to close its border checkpoints with Russia as it seeks to prevent a repeat of the 2015 migrant crisis. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNT Radio. 
www.radio.live. Hey, good to have your company. Plenty to come, but there's plenty of space for you to have your say as well. So if you're listening from the United States or Canada, give us a call on 1-888-201-6425. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. They are our numbers. Looking forward to hearing from you. Well, a few days ago, a sexual abuse survivor from Australia had a major victory against his attacker and the system. This unnamed victim will potentially receive one of Australia's largest ever compensation payouts from the Catholic Church, $3.3 million. Even he was shocked, saying it's a mind-blowing victory, which he hopes will give other survivors a sense of hope. Now, the civil case verdict in Victoria's Supreme Court related to child abuse or sex child abuse committed by convicted pedophile priest Vincent Kiss in the 1960s and 70s. The case was originally brought against the church by four men, but three of the men settled out of court with TJ, whose real name cannot be used for legal reasons, continuing to trial and eventually seeing his jury award him the record 3.3 million payout. After so many agonising decades in Australia with so many victims and their families going to war against a cold and heartless church, the Catholic Church primarily, I wonder whether this case represents a major turning point for those who've been abused by such a powerful institution and institutions. One person I know who'll be best to comment on what Friday's verdict means is the mother of two sexual assault survivors, author and a member of the Order of Australia for significant service to children, particularly as an advocate for those who've suffered sexual abuse, Chrissy Foster. It was Chrissy who, with several other families, broke the back of the church's stubborn defence of the crimes their priests committed on young children. She joins us now from Melbourne. Chrissy Foster, welcome to TNT Radio. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. That's okay. Great to have you on the program. $3.3 million. Were you shocked by that payout for one survivor? Oh, I certainly was. Yes, it's a huge payout, which is um, fantastic. When you say fantastic, what signal does it send? Because on the surface of it, to me, it tells me that the courts are now properly evaluating what the hurt and damage created by these monsters is really worth, or am I giving them too much credit? And is this about the community? That is the subset of a jury. Uh, I think that that's the case, that the jury has um, had a lot to play with this going before a jury and you have ordinary people uh, understanding what victims go through after our Royal Commission and the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry. There's more understanding of the damage that's done now. And um, they've listened to his case and that's the sum they think is fair for him. The cash, of course, can't erase the memories. It doesn't stop the nightmares and it doesn't realign a lost childhood, does it? No, it certainly doesn't. Um, I don't think any payout would be enough to restore someone's life who has suffered that. Um, it's done at such a tender age that the damage is um, permanent in some some people, some children. Do you think, because of the Royal Commission's uh, plural and the other inquiries, do you think we've got to a stage in Australia where, yes, the community has woken up, we've seen that, 
with this particular decision and the courts have woken up to allow juries to get to that point. But do you think the criminality is still as rife as it was or have we diluted and reduced that? Uh, I think, um, again, the education provided by the Royal Commission and the Victorian Inquiry have educated people and there's better understanding now. Um, uh, people just could not understand the enormity of it all and how it worked. I think that's such a good aspect of the learning is um, how this can happen. Uh, it's an invisible crime because it doesn't happen in front of people. It um, happens behind behind closed doors. Mm. So it's very insidious. But, um, yeah, I think people are understanding uh, that it should be, uh, you know, compensated properly in court. You wrote Hell on the Way to Heaven, which was the heartbreaking account of what your family suffered and went through to claim justice. Explain briefly for our listeners what happened to your daughters. Uh, well, we found out that one of our daughters, our eldest daughter, Emma, uh, she became anorexic and suicidal. Uh, and she went into a um, youth psychiatric centre and uh, after some months uh, we found out that she, uh, she disclosed that she was sexually abused by our priest and then 20 months later we found out that our second daughter had um, suffered the same fate. Uh, so we sort of, um, the parents in Oakley got together and we uh had a battle with the church trying to get some justice and attention from the hierarchy. That's an understatement, a battle. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was a war. A, a it war. really was. And, it and, was and, as you, and as you write in that book, uh, you fought for justice driven by rage. Did the rage grow as the church kept treating you so badly? Oh, it did, yes. Well, at first, um, before we met George Powell, we thought, uh, or I thought, that um, he didn't understand. You know, he didn't sort of believe that it was had happened to all these priests that it was um, in the papers about. So I thought, if we just get to see him, he we can tell him and he'll believe. Uh, so, um, but he wouldn't have any of it. He would just told us to prove it in court and uh, hope he can substantiate what you're saying. It was a real battle. It was terrible meeting him. Anyway, um, so that just sort of unleashed a further rage that, um, yes, they understood, they got it, and they didn't give a damn. And, of course, that's how the situation came to be in the first place. It's been going on for centuries. Just on Pell, in your view, was the late George Pell guilty of sexual abuse or just covering up abuse or both? Oh, um definitely covering up abuse yeah. and I think the court case um, speaks for itself. I went to the retrial, um, I didn't go to the first trial, I went to the retrial and uh, yeah, I don't think he should have got let, let off, uh, Yeah, but uh, it's just the decision that was made. And now this year you had your second book published, Still Standing. This latest book takes an in-depth look at clergy crimes. Uh, let me guess it was a shocking eye-opener to you even. It was, yeah, the breadth and the depth of um, them and what they did, their callousness, corruption, 
just the fact that they could do that to children and just be okay about it, you know, put in no effort whatsoever to try and stop it, but do the opposite and hide the perpetrators when they get complaints and um, put them in a new parish where they re-offend, then they get more complaints and then they move them again. Uh, I don't know what sort of people they are, but that's what they do. Mm. I've always wondered, Chrissy, and maybe you can shed some light on this, I've always wondered why the Catholic Church, and I'm a Catholic, why the Catholic Church was so determined to hide their culprits, silence the victims as they did you, and fight so hard against compensation. Was it was it to protect their fellow priests? Was it to protect the church from scandal and reputational damage? Was it to protect the church from monetary loss? Or was it sheer duplicity, do you think? Well, I think it was um, all of those. I think they 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 did all of those things. They hid the culprits. Um, money's a big thing to them, as you can see these days, um, to the, because of the length they go to... to um, fight people in court so they don't get compensated $3 million. Yeah. Um, most of them don't get to court. And that's what's so refreshing about this case is the the victim did get to court against the church. Um, you know, he might be the first one or the second, I'm not sure. But it, this is very early stage. And, of course, this is what the church has been trying to work against because they know once it gets to court, um, there'll be big payouts, like in America. They've learnt a lot from over there. But, um, yeah, so they've wanted to keep it quiet because it's scandalous and it's terrible. Are you, uh, a, are you a supporter of celibacy within the church? Uh, no, not at all. Mm. Uh, I don't know why they're celibate. It's something they did uh, a thousand years ago. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, mm, supposedly be, by the gay... Um, priests in the priesthood at that time because they were losing assets to married priests leaving their own money to family. So that's supposedly what started it. But they could change it any time. They could change it, you know, today to that priests are allowed to marry, but they don't want to marry. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I've just thought on that point, it has been recommended in several inquiries that... Uh, they need to reevaluate celibacy. I don't think celibacy is the cause of sexual assault of young no. children within the church, no. but I do think you would no. reduce sexual assault on boys and maybe even girls in the Catholic Church if celibacy was not part of the vows they needed to take. That's correct. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yep. Where is Australia at at the moment, Chrissy, in terms of finding justice for survivors of church sexual abuse by comparison with, say, the rest of the Western world, from what you have ascertained in the research you did for your second book? Uh, well, I think we are um, very much ahead of probably the rest of the world because we've had those two significant inquiries into institutions uh, so much has come out of it, and that's been a learning thing for the whole world, not just Australia. Um, it was dynamite, the Royal Commission. It was absolutely amazing and fascinating and um, shocking, but not surprising, because for the end product, which is what we're seeing, and all these children being raped and sexually assaulted, 
that end product came from somewhere and it came from their behaviour, uh, the way they operated, the way they worked it so that children were still being raped when they knew about it. Mm. They didn't tell the police, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. They assisted the offenders, they aided and abetted them in further crimes. They weren't responsible for the crimes they were doing before they knew about it, but yeah. after they knew about it. Yeah. Because there was this predilection to shift them to other parishes, and that was all. That was it, wasn't it? That was it, yeah. And and but what I don't understand is okay, you don't want the the um, publicity, the you know the scandal, you don't want that. Uh, but don't shift them to another parish. No. You know, laicise them, get rid of them. Why did they keep them? Yeah. Why did they decide? And this was international. This is the church did it the world over, yeah. not just here. Everywhere yeah. around the world, and all it did was plant another bomb. For those parishioners and those young kids to get caught by. Exactly. And I think there should be some punishment for the hierarchy yeah. for doing that. They have walked away from everything. It's you like harboring a criminal, isn't it, really? It is. It is. It's aiding and abetting. Yeah. They assisted them to be able to do more offending. And and why can why should they just walk away from that? I think the worst um, you know, groups of, they call them institutions, like the Christian Brothers or the um, uh, Benedictine monks, whoever, they call those institutions. So I think the worst offending institutions should lose their tax-free status mm. um, as being a charity uh, because laws do exist for that to happen. So if you just did it to the worst offenders you know, offending groups, as in, the say, the Christian Brothers, for example, yeah. then who would complain about that? Yeah. You know, no one could, would complain. No. That's that's a good punishment for yeah. them. You'd, you'd have, you'd, the cost- all you'd need was a set of compliance guidelines for their apply, uh, application for charity status or tax mm. relief, and you could say easily, well, that's the penalty now. It's two yes. and three years without being able to apply for it. Yes, well, those... Laws already exist for organisations with charity status that if they um, commit crimes, they'll lose it. So it's already there. It doesn't need to be created. And the Catholic Church, the abuse they have caused, they have done, and all the, the victims they have, that costs the taxpayer to restore their lives. Yeah. The church doesn't pay that. Yeah. You know, we the taxpayers pay that. Yeah. So something needs to happen. It's just not right. How how are your children today? Um yeah, Katie's uh was hit by a car. Uh, she took to drinking when she was um fourteen or fifteen. She got hit by a car when she was drunk and uh, she stayed a year in hospital and she still has twenty four hour care. Oh. So um that's you know, it's just heartbreaking. I bet all the time and um amy she's um my youngest daughter she, uh, oh, emma passed away too i don't know that i said that she passed she committed suicide when she was 26 yeah. um and amy our youngest she's got two little children so um which is beautiful yeah beautiful uh bittersweet but the memories uh, are difficult to erase if not impossible right 
Well, they're there, but um, I take solace in the fact that I have taken action and um, yeah. was quite um, a catalyst in the Victorian parliamentary inquiry. And because Victoria got something, the rest of Australia, the victims around and supporters were saying, you know, we need something. So that led seven months later to the Royal Commission. So, yeah, yeah and it's been wonderful, um, an amazing journey through those two inquiries. Yeah. The new book that you have out at the moment, Off the Back of Hell on the Way to Heaven, is still standing. And uh, it was published a few months back, still available in good bookshops. And you can also buy it on Amazon and other online sources. Chrissy Foster, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. No All problem. Best. All the very best to you. All the very best to you. Thank you very much. One of the great advocates for those who suffered sexual abuse at the hands of institutions, in particular the Catholic Church. You think back to the time when George Pell had a chance to meet with Chrissy Foster and her two kids. How could he say to them, you go and fight it in court? As a Christian and as a member of the Catholic Church, my instant reaction would be, how can we help you? Let's try and help you. Um, you've obviously been through such a trauma. You're not lying to us. But they took this legal defensive action, which was just abhorrent. And I'm sorry if you're a George Pell supporter. I could not possibly stand uh, the way he conducted himself when confronted by the criminality that he knew occurred within his flock, his brethren, and, very, and did very little about it. That's the truth, irrespective of whether you think he's guilty or not of the crimes that he was eventually found not guilty of. That's not my concern. I'm not even worried about that. I'm now worried, of course, about the people along the way to the forum that he ignored, like Chrissy Foster and her family, that still can't get on their feet. It's just terrible. Terrible. We'll take a break, and hopefully we'll take some of your calls. Um, by all means, let us know what you think. From the US or Canada, one 201 6425 From the UK, 0330-024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, one 800 Come and have your say right here on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Who says legislation isn't a contact sport? We nearly came to blows today in the United States Senate as Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma squared off against Sean Butterbean O'Brien, the general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. O'Brien had been very critical of Mullen on X, tweeting, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. Just a clown and a fraud, always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy. Mark Wayne Mullen read that tweet and said, here is a place, not now is a time you want to go? And Butterbean said, let's go. Cooler heads like Bernie Sanders intervened. They weren't going to come to blows anyway. This wasn't quite the caning of abolitionist Republican Senator Charles Sumner by pro-slavery Democrat Senator Preston Brooks of South Carolina in 1856, but it was good to see a Republican show a little spine, show a little enthusiasm for his position. Now, if we can only get Mark Wayne as focused on election integrity efforts and on budgetary issues as he is on posts on X. 
From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Many pollution sources can affect the air you breathe. From power plants and vehicles to dust and wildfires. Knowing more about local air quality can help you protect your health. If you're thinking about buying an air sensor, EPA has a series of videos to help you get the most out of it. Learn how EPA collects and uses regulatory data, how EPA communicates health messaging, and how to interpret the readings from your sensor. Visit epa.gov air sensor toolbox. The voice of a changing world. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, so good to have you. My, uh, the sand in my hour clock is starting to run out very quickly, so I'll, uh, I'll hurry up about the information that I have for you still to come on the program. I made mention of the fact that very hurriedly today, Richard Miles for the federal government and Peter Dutton, the opposition leader, have done a deal for a me- series of amendments over these detainees, these rapists and murderers and pedophiles that have been released onto the streets of Australia, which people are understandably concerned about. Uh, some of the details related to the murderers, there's a hitman there that blew up a person, blew up a pregnant woman. Uh, that's the contract that he had fulfilled. And then just at the before he was about to be executed, he escaped to Australia and he was in detention. No one knew what to do. But ever since um, the Sukumaran case, where we had the Bali Eight um, hanged, several members of the Bali Eight hanged for their drug couriering uh, into Bali, well, what happened? We signed a deal, did we not, that we wouldn't send people back, we wouldn't export asylum seekers back to the country that actually was able to execute them. And so that's why these people were in limbo. Well, we've ended up suffering because of it. We've ended up suffering. We've got people roaming the streets right now who really should have been locked up forever. And if you listen to those from their home country, they should have been killed. Anyway, the laws have been changed to ensure that they can be detained if they breach any of their reporting recommendations. So if they're monitored on a daily basis and they don't turn up to their local police station as they were intended to do, they can be detained, locked up, which is something the High Court didn't want. Boy, oh boy. But in the middle of changing the rules and getting this through Parliament today, it's upset the Greens, the poor petals. And this is a story out of news.com. An unlikely alliance between Labor and the Coalition has led to an outburst from Green Senator Sarah Hanson Young. I love it when she has an outburst. Uh, anyway, this was after it was revealed that the crossbench were not privy to the negotiations over this key bill. Well, why would you? The numbers are in the hands of the Coalition and the Labor government. On Thursday, the government sought to rush a raft of new measures through Parliament that will permit the use of electronic monitoring ankle bracelets, strict curfews and threat of jail time in the wake of the release of dozens of detainees, including convicted criminals in the wake of a High Court decision. The High Court last week found ongoing detention to be unlawful, etc, etc. So far, 84 people have been released. Senator Penny Wong confirmed the government agreed in principle to six amendments with the coalition, I reported this a little earlier in the program, to its emergency to patch the issue left by a high court ruling on indefinite detention. They left the issue high and dry because all of a sudden these detainees were free and they weren't to be detained again. 
which was ridiculous when the likelihood is that at least some of them will be detained for not turning up or following the rules of law because they have a predilection in their history not to follow the rules of law. Anyway, she said, Sarah Hansen Young, we are working with the opposition to establish the precise amendments that will take place. Sorry, that's Penny, Penny Wong. The basis on which this has been done is because this bill must be resolved immediately. So there's no time to have committee meetings. I'm not a big one for committee meetings, by the way. Liberal Senate leader Simon Birmingham said he was thankful the government was willing to engage in this discussion, despite only providing the opposition with the bill at 7am. But Labor has yet to share these amendments with the crossbench. And so that led to Sarah Hanson-Young getting cranky that she wasn't part of the deal. She wasn't in the adult's tent. She said, what an absolute disgrace. We've had all morning debate over how this particular bill that was rammed through the House would be managed. And now we see the collusion of both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party cuddling up to ram through bills that this Senate still hasn't even seen. (laughs) So when Senator Birmingham and Senator Wong want to come in here and pretend that there is a working relationship, you've left out a big chunk of this chamber. The crossbench has not seen these amendments. The Greens do not support the measures and have slammed the push as Mr Albanese's tamper moment. You see, the Greens don't care that the community need to be protected because it's all about the ideology of not locking up asylum seekers. You see, asylum seekers have got to be treated like they're right on every occasion, even if they are hitmen and murderers and pedophiles and rapists. That's part of the Greens' ethos, you see. Senator Wong said the outburst from Sarah Hansen-Young was really taking advantage of the chamber, given the Greens would have a chance to ask questions later this afternoon. The Greens senator continued, I know it is inconvenient to the government that there are other voices in this place, but we exist. I think she might have delusions of grandeur. Um, Maybe delusions of relevance. A petition calling for a guarantee of cash and banking services in Australia, which you may have heard covered on this TNT radio network. We've covered it before in other programs. I've heard it. This petition that's running around, which is a fabulous petition to ensure that we can still deal in cash and not go into a digital world where they control every part of our savings and everything that we have stashed away. Um It's received 150,000 signatures since its launch in late March by Jason Bryce from Cash Welcome. The goal is 200,000 signatures. He's going to get there. Isn't that a fantastic result? Fantastic. Let's get to Andrew, who's on our talkback lines. Andrew, go right ahead, mate. Hey, Smithy, my my, um, experience as a victim of child sexual abuse at the hands of the Catholic Church, being the Maris brothers, is very different. I do want to say I love that woman and I thank her for all her advocacy work over the years that she did. Right, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I saw you on the talkback lines. I thought you would have listened to that intently. I did. And and that bastard, Pell, I don't give a stuff if he was guilty of what he was charged with. He was guilty of covering up and allowing this to be going on and on and on. Yeah. Mate. And leading leading to victims taking their life as a result. Absolutely. Mate, I've sent you today a copy of the Victims' Rights Charter. I, I saw right? that. I haven't read it. You, you've sent it to me Mate, during the program. I'm, I am fighting with victim services. Now, understand, victims and services. The Royal Commission charged the New South Wales government to look after me for the rest of my life. And they are refusing to assist me with my disability, which is PTSD and bipolar, as a result of what happened to me as a kid. 
Now, I am disgusted. I'm going, I've taken them to human rights, and it was during COVID, so that went nowhere. I'm now taking the New South Wales government to court, and Mins, you are on notice. I am taking you to court because this is disgusting the way you are treating me. They said that their policy overrides law and they don't have to make accommodations under the 1992 National Disability Okay, I've run out of time, mate. I'm right on news, but thank you very much for calling in. We'll do this again tomorrow at the same time on TNT Radio.